Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling news headlines of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I am here today with Demi Corbin in London and Nina Unlai, who is in Hamburg right now. Uh, hello, you two. Let's get started with a wrap-up of some of the big headlines of the week. Um, Demi, you took the second quarter, first half earnings of salmon farming companies um, and, and did an analysis on who's, uh, who's doing best on EBIT per kilo. Um, tell us a little bit about the EBIT per kilo measurement and tell us what you found by region about um, how people are performing. Well, honestly, it seems like the most feasible way to kind of compare between salmon farming companies using the EBIT per kilo because you're looking at the earnings that they get per kilo of salmon that they sell. So that's the most efficient way of kind of comparing between all of them. Uh, but when, when I dig down and did my analysis, as usual, uh, Maui ranks first, but not in all its operations. Um, only so it ranked first in its Irish operations, and but that's not really the thing is is that when I did the comparison as well, I was comparing to how they performed last year. So in that sense, Maui's Irish operations has been performing really well over the past two years. So there wasn't really a big change or difference in increase or decrease. It was the same thing, uh, but yeah. Interject, uh, Demi. So uh, movies, Irish operations are organic, uh, correct? And so that changes the, at least changes the, um, the premium that they're getting on those fish. Definitely, because if it's more expensive, obviously the earnings are going to be higher. So it depends on how much the price is as well. That's how you see the earnings that they get and the profit they get out of it. Uh, but the Canadian operations actually were the worst out of all the salmon farming companies that I looked at for movies. Um, then mostly, as usual, all the Norwegian companies are the ones that are produ uh, producing the best because if you compare them to how um, the Australian and the Chileans were doing, Chileans not so well, Australians good, but not not the best either. If we look at the Norwegian companies um, in the region, we can see that in the north they were performing really well and better than last year. But when we look further south, uh, they weren't operating very well. So, for example, if we look at Norway Royal Salmon, that decreased from an EBIT per kilo that's in dollars of 2.09 to 0 0.3. So that's a more than like fourfold decrease. That's crazy. And of course, by region, there's a lot of mitigating factors, uh, sea lice, algal blooms, all kinds of issues that can affect the performance of different, uh, different salmon farming operations, even up and down the Norwegian coast. Um, and then in BC, of course, they've, uh, they've struggled with health problems uh, here in Chile as well with, uh, with Caligus uh, sea lice, struggle with those as well. Um, and more interesting, I think, is going to be what uh, what we see in your second half analysis, Demi, because uh, salmon prices, uh, as of last week, hit a new year low, and they are tracking um, at a level, sliding to a level that is is still profitable, but from the highs that they were at are uh, significantly down. Things will be quite different if this persists. 
Um, and it looks like it'll at least persist for a, a, a few more weeks. How long after that, who knows? But there will be a significant decline, at least in, uh, in Norway, um, and in their EBIT per kilo when, when we do this assessment um, early in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're going to see that massive drop maybe in the fourth quarter results. A couple other salmon farming bits of news that were interesting this, this week, and, and I want to ask you, Demi, again on, uh, on this topic. There is a Saudi Arabian uh, operation maybe uh, underway. It's hard to know what phase that it's at. It's quite nascent. But talk to us a little bit about that. And you being from the Middle East, talk to us a little bit about what you might see as uh, as land-based salmon farming um, moving across that largely desert region. Basically, what I understood from this is that there are two Norwegian men that decided to move to Dubai only because they saw that there's a big uh, rush for investment over there and potential like successful projects. So while they were there, what they first came up with, they went to Dubai first, for example, so not Saudi Arabia. And they set up like some sort of salmon import kind of trading and distribution network. Uh, and when I talked about why they moved to Dubai in particular and why they were eyeing the Middle East, it was because they saw that uh, there's a lot of business-minded people there and the weather, <laughs> definitely the weather. Uh, but then uh, when searching land-based farms, they saw that the concept might work well there because uh, with transport costs and logistics and all that, it makes it more feasible to actually build a land-based farm there if you have the investor uh, capacity. Um, so the reason why they shifted from doing a project in Dubai to Saudi Arabia was because uh, they saw that the government was more um, more encouraging about a land-based project because they, in Saudi Arabia, want to increase the consumption per capita of fish or double it, actually. So that's why they, they want to uh, embrace kind of land-based projects. But we don't know where they are with it right now. All, they, all I know is that um, they're at a stage where they've designed the project and they want to start uh, working on it, but they don't have much investment behind it. So they need a $90 million fund to be able to create it. And what they're doing now is eyeing for around $25 million from investors. Um, but in terms of what kind of investor they actually want, uh, they are aiming for anyone that is strategic or is a contributor or can share the vision, but they don't have anyone in particular that they think or like a private equity or anything. So it seems like they're looking for individual um, uh, investors for the time being. Uh, but at this stage, they don't know, but they have an aim to construct the facility within 18 months. So we have to wait and see if this is actually going to go forth or not, because there's not much land-based um, farms in, 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 in the Middle East region that you can kind of, I don't know, compare to. But the thing is that being from the Middle East, I think that maybe building a land-based farm in a, in a desert region is very kind of smart because first of all, you don't have water or any kind of capacity to uh, farm fish um, offshore or anything. So it's, it seems more feasible to come up with a land-based facility, especially if you have all the investment backed behind it. And definitely Saudi Arabia seems like a cool place to start from because it's an oil generating uh, 
oil generating country with a lot of capital. So why not try try it out? Tell us a little bit about uh, sovereign wealth funds. Mubadala, uh, a UAE-based fund, uh, has uh, partnered with Amera Capital on some of their seafood investments. Is this something w- that we might see more of? And, you know, again, I think there are there is the notion that um, if some of these wealthy Middle Eastern countries decide to get into a sector, they have a lot of capital to deploy. Um, what do we know about that? And what do we know about their interest in sort of broadly ag investing? And if this might be something we'll see as a trend? What's happening right now is that they're kind of following the international trend. So they look at what investors in general are looking at. And it seems that because they're following up on the aquaculture boom and how much investment it's getting. So they want to kind of replicate that in the Middle East as well. Uh, But as far as I know, is that only Mubadala was one of the uh, first ones to start uh, investing in aquaculture with with the Greek sea bass and sea, sea bream farm. But we don't have much more that we can talk about at the moment. And it's kind of hard to to toggle what Middle Easterns are, are planning because sometimes not all of their projects and investments fall through. That's, that's an issue because it always depends on political uh, issues as well and, and such. Well, it's going to be fascinating to, to see if that extends and if uh, any of these wealth funds are watching what the other ones are doing, like you said. Um, because certainly that could change the picture pretty pretty quickly. Um, I think with respect to the uh, to the the Saudi land-based uh, salmon farming operation, um, you know we've seen a lot of people now coming out asking for investment for land-based projects, and they're not all going to make it. And I know we've we've I don't want to belabor this point because we've talked about it before and written a lot about it, but. Um, it's going to be very interesting when you have a kind of gold rush for a sector, all of a sudden separating the wheat from the chaff becomes difficult. And so um, it's going to be very fun to track which of these companies are actually going to uh, make it for real uh, and which ones, uh, which ones are going to go bust, and there will be. So we will see. Um, switching over to the feed side of things, Nina, tell us a little bit about Project X. Tell us a little bit about Scredding uh, and WWF and what they're trying to accomplish and what they're trying to achieve. Uh, Project X is a WWF-funded fu- uh, initiative that started about two years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and basically, they call themselves a corporate accelerator. The interesting thing about Project X is they're taking... Uh, 10 of the world's most impactful industries, starting with the feed industry as one of the highest emitters of um, greenhouse gases, and trying to convert the industry to more sustainable sources. So how they do that is they take all players in the supply chain uh, and get them together and present them with what they're calling challenger alternatives. Um, And that's essentially what we understand as alternative feed ingredients or companies that that have alternative feed ingredients to offer um, big buyers like Spreading. So based on that, based on who ends the competition essentially with the most viable product, uh, then they will be testing it initially at Spreading's laboratories to see if it is indeed viable in terms of nutrition, et cetera, everything. And and then the partnership kind of, uh, it depends from there how, how 
how much of an investment spreading season is. It's p- possible that they will form a partnership. It's possible that they'll be purchasing some of their alternative ingredients. But it all kind of depends on how this this competition ends up because it hasn't been done before. So so we don't really know what the end result is going to be. It could be uh, could be anything at this point, honestly. It's quite a wide range of possibilities. Yeah, and I find it fascinating because you know screening has been kind of on the on the forefront uh, of testing out uh, alternative ingredients. I, we shouldn't discount Biomar because they've done a lot as well. Um, but Scredding has um, really kind of embraced this with some recent uh, recent deals and some recent experiments, um, and that's really encouraging. It's really exciting because I think um, regardless of how these types of projects go, it does end up opening up uh, ideas, and it ends up encouraging innovation. So it'll be very interesting to see who comes out on yeah nearly everyone that i spoke to involved in the project kind of agreed that while while soy is a viable ingredient right now it may not be sustainable in the next coming years like who knows and and that the more alternative ingredients they saw possibilities from then then the better um so yeah it's a it's a very interesting approach they have at at project x which they're they're using in fedex it, it it takes the perspective that it shouldn't necessarily be be the suppliers or a, or any one person in the supply chain's responsibility to kind of make these alternatives more feasible and and that's the problem that they kind of acknowledge is that while there's a wealth of innovation out there it's very difficult for companies to actually adopt these innovations without taking on an enormous amount of risk so this is an attempt at closing those risks and, and kind of taking on a lot of the groundwork and the examining, taking a closer look at these products and, and trying to mitigate that risk so that it's not so difficult for big companies like Scratting to kind of open arms to these, these challenger alternatives, as they call it, and make them more viable to use in the supply chain. So I think it'll be interesting no matter what happens. That would explain why furniture giant IKEA is there. Uh, they sell ASC certified salmon in in their stores across the world, um, and I think that's the interesting part. Is when you start to, as you mentioned, get players all the way up and down the value chain, then things get interesting because feed companies increasingly, uh, particularly when they do uh, Vera, uh, when they do alternative ingredient projects like Vera Maris, for example. They'll go down to the retailer and get the retailer on board, and I think that's so important because um, if they're going to make these fly, the buyers have to be on board and understand. Hey, these might be more expensive. Here's why they uh, could be very interesting and could help improve the sustainability of the industry. But uh, they need to understand. Look, this this comes with a cost. So. Um, yeah, it is. It's something I think that people um, as, and aquaculture accelerators of this sort um, kind of acknowledge is that the change does begin from the retailer side, from the retailer saying that there's a certain regulation that they're going to put in place. Um, and so seeing a retailer kind of join the table to talk about alternatives is quite exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it'll be interesting. We'll follow up on that report and, and find out who, who comes out on top. Uh, just shifting a little bit all the way over to wild fisheries and all the way up to Alaska, 
This week, uh, the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice finally cleared the acquisition of Clipper Seafoods and, uh, and Blue North Fisheries. Those are two of the largest Pacific cod harvesters in the world. And the Bristol Bay Native Corporation is the group that will be acquiring those. Now, together, that's going to make a, a company with about $95 million in revenues uh, and around access to about 50,000 metric tons of, of cod. Um, Alaska's native corporations are, are fascinating, and this could herald a very interesting development for these groups. Now, they were established in 1971 as part of a federal law called the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. And immediately when that was signed, they became the state's largest landowners. And they uh, have had access to the mineral rights and to uh, all, all kinds of natural resources in Alaska. Primarily, they focused on deploying that capital um, into projects that have been related to that, related to, uh, related to resources in the ground. They're actually far more diverse than people might think. Um, you know, I think a lot of people understand or, or think that these groups are mainly focused on investments in Alaska. That's, that's uh, absolutely not true. They have investments all over the place, surprising investments. Um, and just in digging around, I'm familiar with, with some of them and certainly familiar with the Bristol Bay Native Corporation. But, um, but it, is, it is amazing uh, the amount of revenues now that these, that these 12 groups have. Um, in 2017, and this is from a report in, in Alaska Business Monthly, um, we had revenues of close to $8 billion among those groups. Now, not all of them are interested in seafood. Um, Bristol Bay Native Corporation is quite unique in that sense because they sit on the shores of the Bristol Bay salmon fishery. They sit on the shores of the Alaska pollock fishery. So they have long targeted seafood as an important part of what, what they're going to do. But when you comb through BBNC, that's the acronym for it, when you comb through BBNC's annual report, you get a real sense of the kind of money that they have to deploy. Their EBITDA in 2019 was $89 million um, on, a, on $1.7 billion in revenues. So it, let's assume that that was a seafood company. That would put them well into the top 20 as a seafood company. And of course, their investments are everywhere. Um, and again, uh, uh, Clipper Seafoods and Blue North, they're not huge companies. They're, they're rather small companies uh, when in, in the whole scheme of the seafood industry. Um, sea Alaska is the only other group, uh, that, and that's Juneau, Alaska-based, down, uh, down in the southeast. Um, sea Alaska is the only other group that's really deployed investment into the seafood industry with their uh, their acquisition of independent packers and Odyssey and their combination with Orca Bay. So beyond that, not a whole lot of groups have really expressed big interest, but I certainly would not be surprised. And certainly uh, the Bristol Bay Native Corporation is going to acquire more. There is no question they're going to stop here. Um, it needs to go well for them. Uh, they need to be able to, to make money off this, uh, off this acquisition. One interesting thing about native groups that's going to give them a bit of an edge here uh, with government contracts is that under U.S. law, native-owned groups have um, essentially all things being equal. Um, they are going to get preference for federal contracts. So that means when you have U.S. Department of Agriculture bids for 
say, the U.S. school lunch program that buys a lot of Alaska fish for the federal lunch program, which is, of course, nationwide. Um, national parks, the U.S. Army, and all the different armed forces. It kind of goes on and on. The U.S. government is large, and it purchases a lot of food. Um, so that does give BBNC a very unique leg up on, on some of these bids. Um, and just being native-owned is, is a very um, – it's something that a lot of uh, retailers – and a lot of purchasers actually also have in their policies as uh, something that they prefer, minority-owned businesses. So it's going to be very interesting to have that slight edge, and that can be all it takes sometimes. But they can't do it all with just Pacific Cod. Pacific Cod is limited in what you can actually accomplish with that fish. There's things that can be done with it, but it's not Pollock. Um, it's not Salmon. So... Um, but it does have some some high value, but the volumes are, are quite small. Um, however, I think we're going to see a lot more from native corporations and um, the Bristol Bay Native Corporation in particular. So um, keep your eyes peeled. This is a completely new player that is jumping on the scene in a big way uh, into the sector. So I think we'll leave it there, folks. Uh, thank you, Nina and Demi, for joining us. Remember that you can find all the seafood news that matters on interfish.com and you can catch us on LinkedIn and Twitter and wherever we can uh, put out some social media updates. Remember that next week, just even less than a week away, we're going to be in London at the Seafood Investor Forum. If you are in the UK area or the London area or if you can catch a quick flight, uh, please join. It's going to be a fantastic lineup of uh, C-suite executives, and the uh, list of attendees is nice and robust and large and full of some uh, really impressive names in the investment community. So hope to see you there. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.